Hello and welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscapes, people and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District. I'm here just below Threlkeld, our third visit to this gateway village, in the company of author, illustrator and our guide for today's wonder, Mark Richards. Hello, Mark. Hello, David. Yes, we're at Threlkeld. I think that's how you pronounce it. But uh, Donald Angus isn't with us, so I can't be absolutely certain. Familiar territory under mixed skies today. We've just had a a bit of a shower, uh, but it's relatively mild, isn't it? A very still day. And I say just below Threlkeld, Mark, and we will just have to concede that we will get the pronunciation wrong all (laughs) during the podcast. We're at the start of one of Lakeland's most popular trails. Which is actually is a clue, isn't it, to today's um, podcast subject? Absolutely, yeah. This is uh, the railway trail, which has received considerable uh, investment to make it uh, accessible to all users. There was a bit of debate about it at the time when it was coming about, but uh, tarmacking has made it possible for wheelchair uh, cyclists, all sorts of people, to get to Trailket and enjoy a, a there and back experience. And it's in quiet countryside in a gorgeous gorge. And the key thing about this is it makes use of a historic track bed to a now long-gone railway line. And that is the clue for today's podcast, Mark. Yes, indeed. We've got the heritage of railways in Cumbria and probably Cumberland more precisely. But it's almost a lost world to many people because we live in cars these days and we've almost uh, forgotten how influential railways have been to the mobility of people in the last 200 years. Yes, we're going to take a long view of railways in Cumbria. We're going to think about the very first railways, some of the mineral lines, the industry that powered the first railways, and then that golden age of expansion when tourism was driving the huge numbers of people particularly uh, from the north of England, to arrive not only into Keswick, but also, of course, into Windermere and Coniston at that time. So we'll look at that, but we'll also look at the declining years as well, the closures that have left us with legacy lines like this, which are now, of course, uh, are walk-in trails. This is one of those podcasts, Mark, that has been suggested to us by our listeners. We do uh, follow up on those quite regularly, and this has been requested many times. We hadn't found the right person for a number of years to talk about the railways of Cumbria, but we have now. Who is our guest today? Peter Rook of the West Cumberland Railway Museum. And today's walk, Mark, not particularly demanding. Where are we going to? Oh, we'll just tootle along the lovely trail to Keswick. We'll get as far as probably the leisure centre or the railway station. The leisure centre without the swimming pool. Well, I can see Peter over there um, just waiting for us by Greeter Bridge, I think it is. Let's go and say hello. Lovely to come down onto the railway trail. How are you doing? Fine, oh, we're doing hey, ever so well. It's Donald. It's, it's Donald. It's Donald Angus himself. Look at that, it's good timing. <laughs> uh, we're in familiar territory, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, we just crossed the Greta, which is newly formed from the Glenbrook Mackin and St John's Beck. 
uh, which runs underneath the A66, which came along after the uh, railway's demise. So we're actually on the railway now, with the railway trail, with a new bridge which got swept away in Storm Desmond, uh, and it's all in good fettle now. And it, it being late January, you can see the canopy of trees above us. In fact, the more recent storm, Storm Arwin, wreaked quite some havoc, and there's a lot of trees at the beginning that have fallen down, and I think we might see some more shortly. But anyway, they've been very quick in tidying up, and there's lots of people coming along enjoying this wonderful leisure facility, as it, we might say. But anyway, I'm in the company of Peter Rook, and you're from the West Cumberland Railway Museum, and this is something of a passion for you. When did you come to Cumbria? I was actually born in the Deep South, but I only stayed there for six months, so I didn't get much of an accent. And then I did most of me growing up in Lancashire, ah. uh, and then uh, went over to Leeds University, from where I came over to Cumbria as a student one summer uh, and thought, oh, I like this. This is right up my street. So when I graduated as a civil engineer, I was looking around for jobs and uh, the ever-open arms of Sellafield were beckoning me. <laughs> and your great passion are railways. Can you tell me what led you into the whole passion of railways? Sure. Uh, my mother and father would have to be chiefly to blame uh, age seven, they bought me a Britannia Loco set from uh, Hornby. That was grand for a number of years until uh, Uncle Len decided he wanted to turn me away from the dark side in into the real passion of full-size steam locomotives, which is what he did. I've never looked back and I've had to fund a horrendously expensive railway Arna habit, uh, which has now resulted in the birth of the museum. The track that we're wandering along is part of the railway that went from Penrith, off what we call the West Coast Main Line, to Workington, I believe. What was the heritage of that? So the first part of that was a line that opened from Cockermouth west through to Workington, and that was primarily to allow uh, the coal deposits of the Cockermouth area to be taken to the coast and, and uh, shipped away. Uh, and then later on, the line east from Cockermouth through Keswick, through to Penrith, uh, was then constructed. So there was a through route across to the uh, Durham coke fields. That was the, the prime reason for that. Unfortunately, a few people have got in the way since, and the, the line has now been totally closed. The bit we're walking is just the, the centre bit from Keswick up to Threlkeld. Fascinating stuff. Well, there's people wandering along, so we'll be not alone, but we'll head west along this lovely trail through the gorgeous valley. It's lovely to get away from traffic anyway, and that's what this route does. It gives everybody a calm little amble. Well, we've come upon our first item bit of architecture, let's say, of the railway. We've come through a fascinating cutting with ferns and honeysuckle and all sorts of things draped down it. Uh, quite a feature. But we've come to a little building. Uh, there's a blocked up window on one side, on the east side, and on the west side there's evidence of a fireplace. It's quite a modest space. What is this, Peter? So this is what's known as a plate layers hut. Plate layers were the people that were maintaining the track. 
they'd be out every hour of the, of the day oiling the track, greasing it, clearing it, fallen trees, as, as we've seen. There's quite a few of those. Uh, and basically, when they had a, a five minutes for lunch, they'd come in here, have a brew, have the sandwiches. Uh, if they were lucky, there'd be a fire going, just a bit of respite from the lovely... Uh, Lake District weather, basically. Something of a feat was creating the actual railway itself. Who was involved with it and how long a process was it? So that would be in, in two parts. And it hasn't really changed in construction work today. So there's the planning part and then there's the execution. And the planning is where you'd have the brains of the organisation. George Stevenson, the permanent engineer of the day, he would be out there doing the surveying, looking at the lie of the land, trying to work out the most economic and efficient route for the railway to take. Uh, and when that was done and the Acts of Parliament's obtained and the monies then they'd start the construction. And that was done by a group of people called navvies. And the word is a, a derogation of navigator. Uh, and they were people that used to originally build canals, hence why they were called navigators. Uh, and when canals were overtaken by railways, they just shifted onto the railways and, and carried on. And that's where the word navvies come from. You mentioned canals there. Could you give us a little bit of a picture of the world before railways and perhaps even before canals? Uh, originally, the, well, apart from just walking, uh, stage coaches were the order of the day and they used to have to travel on these turnpike roads which weren't very clever at all and would turn to mud at the merest hint of weather. It was a very slow process. They had to have coaching inns every 20 miles or so. Uh, lots of uh, highway robbery was taking place. It wasn't a safe thing to do. Something better had to be done. Canals were then deemed to be the answer, and they started to be produced all over Britain. Two examples in, in Cumbria, one in the south, the Ulverston Canal, and one in, in the north, going from Carlisle out to Port Carlisle. That one was, in fact part of what was originally planned to be a cross-country canal from Maryport all the way over to Newcastle. Uh, that was planned in the 18th century uh, and they, they only built the first bit and then the, the will or the monies ran out uh, and no more was built and then the railways came. So the spur for railways as opposed to canals was what? When the canals came in, they took over from pack horses and mules for the carrying of goods. Canals were, were very good at carrying large weights around the country. And because they're supported by water, it didn't take a lot of effort. When the railways came, of course, they could do a similar job, but they could do it a lot quicker. It was all about speed, getting things to market as soon as possible. And that's when uh, the fishing industry really blossomed because we'd be catching huge quantities of fish in the North Sea and they could get it down to their restaurants in London within the day. They occurred in such a short span of time, really, when you think about it. The enormous amount of railways that were constructed in a 30, 40-year period, wasn't it? It's amazing. So the amount of navvies, and particularly Irish navvies, people came over from Ireland to build the railways... It's sort of presumed that um, navvies were Irishmen, and, and it's totally wrong. Yes, there were a lot of Irishmen in there, but there was Welshmen, Scotsmen, people from the northeast, local people as well. Particularly when there was a, a downturn in the agricultural industry, 
people would then move, move across because it's all manual labour. Also, the railways paid more than the agricultural industry. So if someone was building a railway, generally the farmers would wake up and their, their farmhands would have gone. Farm workers and all sorts of manual workers took advantage of the railways because it, it was the economic driver of the age. That's right, and um, they would just move around as the work required. They'd set up camps, uh, literally under canvas, and they'd uh, live quite a, a rough existence. They wouldn't always get on with the, with the local people. There's stories, particularly on the, the Settle and Carlisle line, of running fights between the, the navvies and the local people. But generally, everyone recognised the railways were there for the benefit of the community, uh, so they put up with it. And, of course, acquiring the land to put these routes took a lot of negotiating, did it? Not so much negotiation as um, force majeure, to be honest, because every railway required an act of parliament. So uh, if the local landowner, uh, who was generally uh, an earl or a lord or something, Mm -hmm. decided he wanted a railway, then he had the money to get parliament to agree that uh, an act of parliament would give him consent, uh, and away he went. So we'll get out uh, as the sun's uh, come out again, thank goodness. It's a constant flow of people, so that's lovely to see. They keep smiling at us through the porch, as it were. But we want to now explore the first railways in this county of Cumbria. Well, we've just come a little bit further along. We've actually come through what I call the cubby hole because Tommy Cubby's company did all the reconstruction of this railway trail. And you get a wonderful prospect of the River Greta. And I can just see Lonscale Pike with a little bit of snow on the cornest edge of it. There's a seat here with a couple sitting in there listening to the dancing merry waters of the Greta. Now, the first railways in Cumbria. Where were they, Peter? Uh, I'll start at the very beginning, if, if I may. So 1804, Cornishman Richard Trevithick builds his first steam locomotive. Now, that's different to a steam engine, because it was James Watt who produced that. But it was Trevithick who managed to make it move, as in locomotive. And that's where that starts from. And then we get the, the first use of steam locomotives on the Stockton and Darlington Railway, which most people know about. And that was quickly followed in 1830 by the Liverpool and Manchester Railway, which was the first fully signalled double-track railway in the world. But in Cumberland, we had to wait until 1838, and the first line was the Newcastle and Carlisle, uh, and that was built so that Newcastle could get access to West Coast ports, as all the metalwork that was being produced in the Newcastle area, if they were shipping it away, they had to go all the way around the coast of Scotland, uh, and so they decided, yes, we'll, we'll put this railway across to Carlisle. Carlisle had their little canal that went out to Port Carlisle, and that's why when the railway finished in Carlisle, it terminated at Canal Junction, literally end-to-end with the canal. Then the goods were shipped onto barges uh, and out into the sea, down to Liverpool or Bristol. Staggering, because I have this far more minuscule view of that canal. But now when you link it to Newcastle and all the industry and all that heavy stonework and coal and more metal it is being conveyed, it suddenly becomes a major industrial feature. Absolutely. It was the first, if you like, cross-country route that was available. 
Uh, and it was really the making of Newcastle because they could then get all their goods out to the West Coast ports and they could um, then send them around the world. Newcastle and Carlisle Railway, they employed the preeminent engineer at the time, George Stevenson, and as they were building that line, the good burghers of Maryport, Workington and Whitehaven thought, hmm, this looks like the future to us. Uh, let's get George down and have a, a chat with him about building a line further down the coast. So it's the Senhouse family that ran Maryport, the Kerwins of Workington and the Lowthers of Whitehaven. And at that time, the port in Whitehaven was, was the biggest of the three. All three were used for sending goods away, but primarily coal across the island. And they could see the, the benefit in having a railway. So George Stevenson came down and they had a meeting with him. Uh, and he said, yeah, that's fine. We can build you a line down there. Uh, and as they were leaving, the Senhouses took George to one side and said, you know what, George, actually, I don't think we need it to go any further than, than Maryport. So just, just down to, to Maryport will do nicely. Uh, and obviously they had the total benefit of that. And within 18 months of the line being constructed, Maryport became the predominant port on the west coast of uh, Cumbria. Uh, the Lowthers were never going to stand for that, of course, so they then started an extension down to Whitehaven. And within a year of that being built, Whitehaven then took over again. Port Carlisle itself, though, were, was not a good port. It was, it was prone to silting up and they couldn't get very large ships in. And that's why they extended the line from uh, Drumborough all the way over to um, Silleth. Uh, and Silleth then, which was a deep water port, then became the predominant cattle port for the county. And we were exporting coal uh, over to Ireland and they were sending back all the, the cattle that they were growing on the nice Irish grass. So who are the funders of all this process? Basically, you're looking at the, uh, the landed gentry, who were the landowners of, of the day. Not only did they own the land, but they generally owned what was underneath it as well. Coal was a, a massive resource in Cumbria, and it was a question of how can we transport our coal more quickly and efficiently. Uh, and the answer was railways. So people like the Lowthers... They had um, an agent called Spedding who used to organise a lot of the work for them. I'm minded about funding these things. There's a lot of money involved with that. Were the shareholders involved as well? Yes. The landowner would put some money forward. He would then petition Parliament to get an act of Parliament to be allowed to build the line and they would then organise shareholders to fund it. Um, and with a lot of schemes that even go on today, there was a lot of money made by a, a small number of people and a lot of money lost by a larger number of people. The world was ever such. So what comes after Maryport and Carlisle? So uh, George Stevenson had this grand plan that he wanted to make a, a route up to Scotland, the Grand Caledonian Railway. And for whatever reason, he decided that it wanted to go all the way around the coast of Cumberland, as it was then rather than go over Shap, as it does now. And the reason for that was, he said that the gradients going up the hills will be too much for the locomotives to be able to, uh, to bear. And he petitioned Parliament to allow him to build this, this line all the way around the coast. For once, Parliament got it right and uh, said, no, George, that's, that, it really isn't correct. So that's the, the birth of the Lancaster and Carlisle line that was built through in 1846... Uh, and it was constructed by about 2,500 navvies using only picks and shovels 
and it was all built in a faster time than it took to build the similar length of M6 with mechanised equipment in 1958. I take my hats off to all, every single man. Incredible what they achieved. So that linked Lancaster with Carlisle and on up into Scotland over Metal Bridge and so forth. In terms of the Shap route, which is quite a challenging idea with the gradients and so forth, how many sort of variant ideas were there on what might be possible? There was three or four considered, um, one of which went up the valley towards Kendal. There was even one that was going to go in a huge tunnel for miles and miles. And they were all basically disregarded on cost grounds um, and on the basis that technology of locomotives was, was moving ahead so quickly they didn't think it was going to be a problem going up over Shap, and that's the one they chose. And they sometimes you used two locomotives to pull them up early on, yeah. did they? And even in the 50s and 60s, they had what was known as a banker. That was kept at uh, Tea Bay, and when the, the long expresses or the heavy goods trains were setting up to go up over Shap, this locomotive would come along at the back and just help give it a push, and then when it reached the summit, it could just drop away and go back to Tea Bay. He's a nudger. Yeah. <laughs> well, we've got a picture of the early days and we've got a sense that this is all going to blossom into so many new tracks and new purposes. So we'll go a little bit further. I'm intrigued, Peter, by the features. Uh, I've just seen two posts beside the track. Could you describe what they were? Yeah, the two concrete uh, artefacts from the days of the London, Midland and Scottish Railway, so from about the sort of the 1930s onwards. Uh, one was a gradient post. It would have had an arm pointing in either direction that would have had the gradient of the track. And those are used such that the engine crew know if they have to start putting more coal on to get the fire going if they're coming to a hill or if they need to slow down or, or whatever. The other thing we saw there was a quarter-mile post, which again was a concrete one. Originally, they were put in very early on, so all the, the engine drivers knew where they were, basically. The plate lane crew as well. That has stood the test of time. Because it's concrete, it survives the weather quite nicely. Probably too expensive to even bother getting rid of. There's a, a, a concrete structure, like a trough. Most of it's been de demolished, but what would that have held? It's got a concrete base and then three sides and it's open at the side that's adjacent to the railway uh, and that's what's known as a sandbox and it would have been full of sand and grit and the side open to the railway is such that you can get easy access with a shovel. So again, on a, an incline, if you've got leaves on the line uh, or the, it's a bit slippy, there's some dew, whatever, the fireman will come down and he puts some sand grit on the line and the loco will be able to get uh, better grip so it could then pull away. We've got the main lines now in our minds. Uh, there are obviously more parochial lines, let's say. What, what others can you identify? So 1847 saw the Cockermouth and Workington Railway. People generally think the railway from Cockermouth went to Keswick and Penrith, whereas the first one went east to the coast. Uh, and then that was followed very quickly, 1848, by the Furness Railway, opened originally down near Barrow, and that was for the transportation of slate from the Earl of Burlington's quarries uh, and also some iron ore from uh, Dalton. Then 1850, the Whitehaven Furness Junction Railway uh, was opened up from Whitehaven to join up with the Furness Railway down at Broughton. 
and then 1852, uh, the Whitehaven Tunnel was, was built. Now, originally, there was a, a station at Bransley, and there was another one at Preston Street, which is about where uh, Argos is now, um, if you know Whitehaven. Uh, and they weren't joined at all. And you had to literally walk from Allen Half through the marketplace with all your kids and luggage and goodness knows what. Uh, and this was all because Lord Lowther, who lived in Whitehaven Castle, even though he was promoting both those railway lines and put a lot of his own money into them, he didn't want to be able to see a railway locomotive from his house. So he, he wouldn't allow the railways to come any closer to Whitehaven Castle. After two years of people throwing rotten tomatoes and eggs at his windows, he eventually relented and said, well, OK, you can join the lines up, but only if you put them in a, in a tunnel, so I still can't see them. And that's how Whitehaven Tunnel came about. It's the longest railway tunnel in Cumbria, and it's virtually at sea level, all to suit the vagaries of Lord Lonsdale. What we've got a picture of is a lot of fragmented railways all over the place, not joined up because they have individual purposes. But before long, it becomes far more sensible economically to start linking them all together. Yeah, it's absolutely correct. The parochial aspects of moving one man's coal over to the sea or one man's slate uh, quickly became a requirement of let's move things all the way around the country and indeed the world. And that's how the Industrial Revolution eventually came about. So you've got these little bits of railway that's starting off in Carlisle and Whitehaven and Barrow and indeed uh, Ulverston. And bit by bit, the strands of the railways went towards each other and they did join up. And as soon as they did join up, then that little railway couldn't go any further. So it, it was then thinking, right, what do we do now? I'm going to try to take over the next railway to expand even further. In the, the mid-1840s, you were looking at something like 500 different railway companies in Britain, which is a staggering number. Uh, and eventually they got amalgamated into, before the First World War, there was uh, about 126 or so. Interestingly, um, one of the longest bridges was the one that went over to Annan and so forth, linking the Ayrshire Coalfield, I believe, with Workington, was that? Along those lines, definitely. Um, it's a fine line between what's known as a hub and a bottleneck. And Carlisle originally had seven railway companies coming into it from all sorts of directions, and that was seen as being a bottleneck. So the transference of Cumbrian iron ore north to Scotland um, smelters and also Ayrshire Coal south was having to go through Carlisle and they thought nothing of building the Solway Junction Railway that uh, linked off the Maryport and Carlisle uh, and then went through to Bowness where there was then the longest railway viaduct in Europe at the time over a mile in length across to Annan and this was all so they could save 10 minutes from having to go into, into Carlisle. Staggering. It's the HS2 of its time. 20 minutes saved, so that's very comforting. Because people used to walk across the bridge from Annan to Bowness to get a, a beer on a, on a Sunday. <laughs> Couldn't get beer in Annan. <laughs> yeah, it, was, it proved to be very useful in World War I. So the, the Jellicoe specials, the coal trains going up to Scarpa Flow to uh, service the fleet up there, they were going over that line 24-7. But as, as you say, after World War I, it fell into a bit of disrepute. 
and then Carlisle was then seen as being a hub rather than a bottleneck. Everything went into Carlisle. So the, the railways just stopped using the bridge uh, and, uh, yes, the good burgers of Annan would wander over the bridge on a Sunday for a Sunday lunch, a pint, a kiss and a cuddle with their lady friends in Bowness and then trying to stagger back in the evening. A number of them fell off the bridge never to be seen again. So the government insisted the railway company put a sentry box on the bridge. There was one gentleman there whose sole job was to try to halt... Uh, groups of marauding Scotsmen who'd, who'd had uh, a couple of beers from going over the bridge, he had no chance. So in the end, uh, the government insisted that the bridge had to be demolished. And when they tried to demolish it, they found that the metalwork was, was so good they had to use explosives to take it down. The metalwork was then exported to Japan, who used it to build their high seas fleet. So there's bits of the Solway Viaduct that were used against the, the Americans in World War II. Well, we'll plug on a little bit further. We've come to uh, the point where Storm Desmond made a great incursion into the river. You can see there's a tree standing right in the middle course of the Greta and uh, they had to completely alter the line of the railway, or should I say the cycle track, swinging to the right of the river. And uh, we've come just off to the side of that, just to have a look um, at the perspective. You can see Latrig ahead of us, looking west, and behind me I can just see the top of Wanthwaite Crag on Clove Head. I'm thinking about passengers now. The leisured use of trains, how did that sort of evolve? Virtually every railway in the world, and certainly everyone in Cumbria, was initiated for the movement of, of goods and artefacts. But shortly afterwards, they decided that passengers were necessary as well, if only to move the workmen round to their places of work. And indeed, they used to have special workmen's trains. Commuters? Yes, quite, early commuters. But yes, passengers came along quite quickly, and they proved to be very useful in providing an alternative income stream particularly when the price of coal or iron ore took a crash due to cheap imports from Spain or something like that. And some railways were very quick to get onto the bandwagon of tourism. Uh, the Highland Railway and the Furness Railway were two of the, of the front runners. Uh, and they were setting up tours all over the place using their trains where they could. But they then put in charabangs to go between one station and maybe a lake and then they'd have a steamer on the lake to go to the other end of the lake, charabang to another station, put in some tea and sandwiches along, along the way and you have a good day out. Uh, and this happened a lot and the Furness Railway introduced a whole series of tours from places even as far away as Fleetwood, would you believe, and they'd have steamers coming over to, uh, to Peel uh, and then they'd be going round lakes for the day They'd be issuing postcards so that people could buy postcards of where they'd been. Uh, they'd have their own stamps as well for sending to people. Uh, and it turned into the, the start of the tourism industry as we know it. The railways were the, the key link in the whole new uh, wave of travellers. And particularly for the Furness Railway, uh, because they were based in the, in the south of Cumbria and trying to move as far as they can northwards, they saw the ability to 
add different forms of transport as another income stream. So they would have lake steamers going over, which they owned, and then they, they would have the shower bank. Some of them they owned, some of them the, they didn't. But they, they tried to keep as much money as, as possible in-house because it was guaranteed income, basically. More connected you could be. So when you think about the M6 being the great courier for tourism, actually it was all far more to the west. What they call the Lake District Peninsulas was the avenue into the Lake District all the way through the early days of the railways. And that's particularly the case if you think about the main line as it stands now between Lancaster and Carlisle, and then there's the coastline. And if you want to get into the interior, there was the line up into Coniston but that came from the coastline. The first line to Cockermouth came from the coastline. Most of the branch lines came off the coastline uh, originally. Tourism really takes off. And there were other ideas that really didn't take off. Yeah, there were some, could say, harebrained schemes, who, who knows. There was a possibility at one point of extending the Ratty, the Ravenglass and Estelle Railway, from Boot uh, in a tunnel through to Umbleside and thankfully that didn't get done. It's not called hard knock for no reason, it is a hard rock. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and then there was the one potentially up Dunmail Rays that would eventually have served um, slate quarries up there and gone through to Keswick. Uh, again, that would have been a, a step too far. Another one that did get built, though, was the what was known as the Waverley Line. It's not in Cumbria, but its reason was for Cumbria. The North British Railway in Scotland ran the East Coast Railways and the Caledonian ran the West Coast and the North British wanted to get uh, a West Coast port and the Caledonian weren't going to allow them to do so. So in the end, the North British bought the line out to Sillith from Carlisle and they built what then became known as the Waverley Line down to Carlisle, which connected through and they could then use the docks at Sillith. They then promoted Sillith, and, and this was the real making of Sillith as a, as a town. They built the championship golf course, they built the golf hotel, the bandstand, the esplanade, everything to do with it, because they had hordes of uh, Scotsmen coming down on holiday from Edinburgh who all wanted to play golf, etc., etc. And again, that's why they had the trips out from Sillith. It became a transport hub for, for ferries. It was the railways that made Sillith what it is today. another bridge at my feet there's a fresh Mowdywarp that is a molehill to a common listener uh, a Mowdywarp is Cumbrian it means a Mowdy is soil and a warp is to turn it over so this is soil that's been turned over by a mole we're off the line we'll get back on the lines now because I'm thinking that when we were first talking about the number of companies involved with these railways, there were something like 500, then they diminished to about 120. I move right the way forward to about the First World War when things were on the move again. What were the changes that that wrought? Up until then, all these companies are working in competition with each other. Uh, and just like you do in industry, amalgamations and takeovers were taking place. So from the 500-odd that there were around in Britain... We get down to about 126, something like that. And the, the First World War comes along and all these companies are still in competition with each other. Uh, but now we can't afford to be in competition because we're in competition with Germany instead. So the government decide that they need to have a single body who will set standards for all these railway companies to follow. 
and they set up a thing called the Railway Executive Committee that was originally formed in 1912 to act as an intermediary between the War Office and all the railway companies. It worked very successfully. Uh, it set all the standards, made sure that uh, the fares were standardised. It made sure that none of the companies were going to go broke, although the ability to do maintenance was much reduced, such that they were in a, a very poor state after the First World War. But it did work well. Um, the Solway Junction Railway we talked about before, that was a key part of the Jellicoe Specials, the coal trains, that were going up to Scarpa Flow in the north of Scotland to fuel the, the British Grand Fleet that was stationed up there. And then after the First World War, the government think, well, the Railway Executive Committee's worked well. Should we nationalise the railways now? And they decided that it was a step too far. But instead of that, they'd do a halfway house and they'd do what's called grouping them. So they ended up with just four companies rather than 126. And they were the Great Western, the Southern Railway, totally southern, the London and North Eastern up the eastern side of the country and London, Midland and Scottish up the western side of the country. That is how the uh, the railways then progressed uh, up until the, the Second World War uh, and the same thing then happened. The Railway Executive Committee was brought in again for the Second World War. It did another good job and they had another thing after the Second World War. The railways were now absolutely worn out, no money to spend so full nationalisation did take place on 1st of January 1948 and British Railways were then born on that day. With all these railway companies, there will have been shenanigans and skullduggery associated with the competition between businesses and so forth? Yep, absolutely right. I mean, just like today, there's uh, discussions about energy companies charging too much and should the government step in. In those days, the, the railway companies would charge what they thought was a, a fair rate. Some people thought it was, others didn't. Um, a very good example was around Cleeta, where the Whitehaven Cleeta and Egmont Railway, which is quite a short railway, but ran from Frisington down to uh, Whitehaven, uh, and it was taking so much goods and minerals down to the docks that it was regularly paying its shareholders 20%, 2-0% per year for a, num a number of years. So some of the owners of these mines and industries were thinking, hang on, if they're paying 20%, how much are they making from us? So they decided late in the piece that they would build their own railway separately straight into the, the port of Workington, bypassing every other railway company so that they could be in, in control of it and they knew that they weren't being fleeced. Ironic, isn't it? Uh, there's another example of the Maryport and Carlisle Railway who were the second railway in Carlisle but when the London North Western came from the south and the Caledonian from the north they wanted to run what is now the Citadel Station. The Maryport and Carlisle Company wanted to uh, still be in a preeminent position and it all came to a, a head after a couple of um, bits of legal wrangling and a pitch battle was, was fought and the uh, London North Western Railway hired in a bunch of uh, rent mob basically and burnt the, the Maryport station to the ground <laughs> so that their station was the only one in Carlisle and everyone had to use it. 
We've been through the Bobbin Mill tunnel, which was extended, and it was deeper at once. You've got little bays where the linemen on the railway once cowered when a train came through. And uh, emerging into the sunlight again, come by a sign stating that in 1999, this whole structure, the bypassed uh, concrete structure going over the greeter, was the best civil engineering structure of the century. Well, that's quite something when you think about something like the Humber Bridge. <laughs> I don't know what the thinking was there. Anyway, we've come by some benches, and adjacent to it is one of these totems that Sustrans set up. And this one relates to the Penrith to Sunderland across England cycle route. So we've come to that time in history of the railways where cost-cutting started coming about and what one tends to call rationalisation. What was going on, Peter? So um, we talked about nationalisation and this is now still before the, the arch nemesis of Dr Beeching but in the 50s rationalisation started in a, in a big way once the, the railways were all nationalised they'd found that a lot of the routes that had been in competition with each other were now no longer needed and towns that had several stations only needed the one so a period of, of rationalisation started that involved a variety of, uh, of events. They uh, closed stations where they could, they closed some lines, they changed a lot of the rolling stock to try to entice people back onto the railways. Steam engines were gradually phased out, diesels were brought in, some electrification of lines were, were taking place. Another aspect was the starting of the construction of Britain's motorways, the first one being the Preston Bypass, of course. And this was formalised initially by the Conservative governments of the time. And um, what a surprise, the Conservative Transport Minister, uh, Ernest Marples, owned his own construction business. And they just happened to win some of the contracts for building some of, some of the motorways, purely by chance, as I understand it. Uh, and then, of course... Dr Beeching comes along, this is now into the early 60s, uh, and it was decided that a thing called a modernisation plan was going to take place, which is a, a euphemism for, uh, for closing things down. And he was brought in at a salary of over twice that of the Prime Minister uh, from his job in ICI, and the Conservative government gave him a remit to, uh, to come up with this plan, which he did. It came out in two large volumes called the, the Reshaping of British Railways and the main content of that was the closure of 55% of all the railway stations and 30% of all the route miles. So that's over a third of the whole network was proposed to being closed. The way he went about that was doing some sort of survey by trying to uh, judge which stations were worth keeping. Um, Unfortunately, it was done with political decision-making at its base. So a lot of the stations were visited on a Wednesday afternoon in November when, what a surprise, there weren't many people there, rather than, for instance, how many people were coming to Keswick in the summer. Uh, and lo and behold, it became time for a general election. The Labour Party in their manifesto said that um, if you vote us in, we definitely won't put forward this Conservative plan to close the railways. So, of course, everyone voted for the Labour Party. Uh, Labour became the next government. Uh, they got into power and they immediately closed all the railways. 
So what can you see in Cumbria from this rationalisation? As I've just explained, nobody comes out of it uh, well, apart from Dr Beatsing, of course, who got a peerage out of it and uh, became uh, Lord Grinstead, I believe, which is where he lived. And even though his, his line was proposed to be closed, funnily enough, the section down to Grinstead was, was kept open. In Cumbria, the, uh, the branch up to Coniston uh, was shut. The line all the way through from Workington, Cockermouth, Keswick, Penrith was closed. The line out to Sillith was closed. The lakeside Haverthwaite, which became a, a heritage railway. You're basically left with the, the coastline from... Um, Carnforth, Barrow, up to Carlisle and the main line over Shap and, and that is now all we have left. So Cumbria fared very poorly out of it. It just wasn't appreciated how much the railways did for the rural way of life. It was all done on a, on a cost-cutting basis uh, and if there weren't enough passengers going on a certain day, point A to point B, then the, the line was closed and it wasn't done with communities um, at the forefront of the thinking. Uh, some other ones going out of the county as well met their demise. So the, the line from T Bay going uh, eastwards over to Durham. We kept the line from Carlisle to Newcastle, but that was then the only one uh, further south. All the hoo-ha that um, went ahead with the settling Carlisle, that was almost closed as well, but they, they just managed to keep that open. And now it's making an absolute fortune. And you think of what would have happened with some of the other railways if they'd been kept open uh, and the money that they'd now be making with the the tourism aspects. It it was a real travesty. We live in a different age of passenger travel now, don't we, really? So what's next for Cumbria's railways? Uh, You're quite right about the uh, the passenger travel. So ever since privatisation, and we we all complained about um, Virgin Rail as as was and um, its punctuality, but the, the use of the railways by passengers has gone through the roof. More people using the railways now than ever were. The current government do have some stated aims on reopening some of the railways. The first one has already opened down south near Oakhampton and is proving to be a real success. Uh, you look at the, uh, the borders line that opened up in, uh, in Scotland, uh, it's making a fortune and they're going to extend that. There's a possibility of that line being extended through Hoyk down into Carlisle. The Waverley line. Which would be uh, an excellent boon, certainly. And our MPs have now got together after decades of the, of the County Council not being interested in the suggestion of reopening the line from Penrith to Keswick. If, if only in the summer months, just to get some of the, the cars off the road, that would be a real boon. And there's, there's not a lot of the infrastructure missing. Unfortunately, when they put the, uh, the path that we've now been walking on back in, that rather precluded the use of the, the railway coming back in, I suspect. But there are some suggestions, certainly. The line up to Coniston will be another perfect example of a tourism line that could easily be reinstated, I think. Well, they could have the train stopping Throckeld or further back and then ha- having shuttle buses. Yeah, or even um, just a, a light rail. It doesn't, it yes. doesn't have to be a, a heavy rail anymore. No, so that's it. Well, we'll make that final few hundred yards, well, it's got a few hundred yards, as we begin to enter the town of Keswick. Well, we've made it to Keswick Station. The end of the line, as far as we're concerned today, 
It's the end of the railway trail, the recreational route, because it comes through to the re recreational centre, the leisure centre. But there's people coming by, there's a lady in a wheelchair coming through, being pushed along. And I'm under the canopy of the station here with the uh, Keswick Hotel. Were there any special guests over the years? I'd have to say the most famous one I'm aware of is um, uh, Winston Churchill himself. He attended a couple of, of dinners here, certainly, and there's a, um, there's a signed menu inside the hotel on the wall showing all the, all the attendees uh, of the day. The German Chancellor, I think, was there as well. There were probably uh, bosom buddies at that time, but um, proved not to be later on, certainly. <laughs> uh, the hotel itself was run separately to the railway line, even though there's a, a covered walkway linking the two. And uh, there's some very nice pictures of uh, famous artists in stained glass uh, in the windows of the, the covered walkway, which are worth having a look at. You might need to go inside the hotel just to, uh, to check it out, but it's very, very nice. And round the front, there's um, a boundary marker for the railway, the CKP Railway, which is a piece of Borrowdale slate, which is set into the ground just by the side of the path, uh, which uh, dogs tend to use as a toilet these days. It's a real artefact. Amazing. We're getting onto the platform now, and uh, unfortunately you can't get onto a train from here. But Peter, could you recommend to our listeners any train ride that you particularly think is still really worth replicating today? Um, yes, I would, I would have to say, I live in St Bees and I do this fairly regularly, but the line south from St Bees all the way along the coast, so you, you can look inland and you've got all the fells looking at Wasdale and Esdale, out to sea, the Isle of Man, if it's, if it's nice, all the seabirds. It's, it's just a fantastic route down, and then you get down onto the... Uh, the viaducts over the estuaries, Esmeals, Duddon, just a, a lovely, lovely um, trip out. It's noticeable that some of the, the railway touring companies that send a lot of their excursions over the Settle and Carlisle, they're now sending an increasing number down our coastline. And in their advertising, they're saying that it's potentially of a part, if not even more scenic than the Settle and Carlisle. And I would have to agree. I understand what they're meaning and I believe Cumbria Tourism are putting a great deal more effort into promoting the coast of Cumbria. It's one of those assets that have been underplayed over the years and you need very often to stand back from beauty to get the full perspective on it and certainly that's what you get here and uh, as you say across the Irish Sea is splendid. If there was any railway that's long gone you'd like to see back is the one you'd like to pinpoint um in cumbria i'll say two but i'll pick my best uh, in second place would have to be the line out to Silleth, uh, just because it's been gone for so long and to be able to go all through all the little villages drumborough and kirk andrews that would be great to to have, uh, see that back but the real miss is the cockermouth keswick penrith obviously uh, even if only part of it from from penrith to keswick was reinstated uh, that line up through the the greater gorge is just just wonderful. It's a great walk, but it would have been an even nicer railway journey. Well, it's been really special. Um, your railway museum is uh, something really special as well. I think people should know more about that. Uh, I tend to open... It's a bit of a movable feast because it, it's a hobby, not a job. But from March to October, I will open uh, for a general session for one week a month. 
and then the rest of the year I open by appointment um, if I'm around, quite happy to do so. Uh, the best way to contact me is through, um, I've got a Facebook page for the West Cumberland Railway Museum and it's got my email on there as well. Uh, and if you want to contact me and we can, we can set something up, uh, be always nice to see anyone who's who's interested just coming round and uh, and having a look see i hope we can draw a few listeners to come and discover the cumberland railway museum it sounds really exciting i must make a point of coming and seeing you in person myself thank you so much for giving your time it's been a real pleasure thank you peter Journey's end at the end of the line. Uh, busy old town, Keswick. Plenty of noise in the background, Mark. But um, yeah, it was, it was good fun, that, wasn't it? Oh, I loved it. I've got completely new perspectives on how people visited Cumbria mm. or Cumberland, Westmoreland, uh, Lancashire across the sands, <laughs> uh, Furness, uh, over the years. The orientation, I was fascinated by the way Silith grew yeah, to service it. Edinburgh uh, yeah. Appetite yeah, for I golf. I not have a clue about that. <laughs> that was nice, that one. Um, I quite like the Whitehaven story. Lord Lonsdale didn't want to see the view, did he? So that uh, explains the tunnel there. And also, I love all the kind of intrigue you get between these companies trying to block each other's way and creating whole new lines just so <laughs> they don't have to pay the existing... Um, people so uh, yeah absolutely fascinating i'm glad we got round to this in the end because it's been a long time coming you asked peter about his favorite cumbrian train rides do, do you have a favorite yourself oh gosh yes i'm a soft spot for the settle carlisle i couldn't oh, yes. fail to admit that i, I appreciate the cumbria coastline is fabulous mm. i accord with on that one but uh, I've got, always got a soft spot for the Yorkshire Dales. The journey to the Yorkshire Dales, to Ribblehead, to Ingleborough and all the Eden Valley and come two-way on Settle Carlisle, you're just going to soak up the wonderful landscape. And I love the fact on that line, it's still a commuter route. You, know, yeah. you can just get your normal commuter. Um, uh, your regular housekeeping, Mark, let's start with the first one, which is to say if you like what we do and if you want us to continue making these podcasts it does cost a little bit of money to fund the server and the hosting package so you can donate to us via patreon Uh, you can just go to our website and there's a little support us link there for less than a price of a cup of tea each month we very much welcome donations there you can get a chocolate cake if you go as well but uh I don't think we're offering Oh, are we offering them? Oh, dear. Well, sorry. You have to go to the Railway Museum (laughs) for that. Anyway, you can go to www.countrystride.co.uk for that. On that same website, you will find our books, a selection of guidebooks, which also support the making of the podcast. You'll find 74 previous episodes. Oh, this is 74. There you go, 73 previous episodes there. We're on social media, Mark. Oh, yes, at Countryside One on Facebook and Twitter. So please communicate with us. We love to hear from you in that way. We do. And just bear in mind that this particular episode was the result of suggestions from listeners. So, yeah, do drop us a line. We've had quite a few interesting suggestions recently. 
And I think that's it for today. We're yeah, looking out over a sunny skiddle now and I'm quite looking forward to going to town and all that mention of chocolate cake, it means there is an inevitable end to uh, my trip out today. <laughs> I, 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 know you love, I know you love chocolate, Dave. Uh, any cake, really, oh, in, in a storm. Anyway, that's <laughs> us from today, from wonderful Keswick. We're saying goodbye from Country Skype.